The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so that it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Welcome to the School of Golf Architecture, Episode 4, Collaboration. So the first three episodes of the School of Golf Architecture covered the relationship between a course and its site. The discussion often wandered into philosophical territory, and I'm into that kind of thing, obviously. But for this installment, I wanted to get practical. How exactly do golf courses get built? There's a tendency when discussing the stories behind golf courses to focus on the individual architect. We lionize figures like Harry Colt, Seth Rayner, Donald Ross, and Pete Dye, and we see the projects they work on as essentially theirs. We speak of Mackenzie's Cypress Point or Doak's Pacific Dunes. On the flip side, when a course doesn't turn out well, we know who to blame. But the truth is that it takes many more people than the lead architect to create a golf course. First, there are the owners. These may include a developer or a general manager or a green committee chair or all the above. Usually a superintendent will be in the mix too. The owners may initiate the project and their vision may animate it, but their role is often behind the scenes and not very well understood. Then there are the builders. Among them are skilled shapers, some of whom travel the world with architects like Bill Corr, Tom Doak, and Gil Hance, laboring over bunker edges and green contours. Less celebrated are the construction companies that do grading, drainage, irrigation, grassing, and other unromantic tasks. Some design firms use these contractors for more specialized shaping work. Others make a point of not doing so. In the middle of it all is the architect, who appeases the owners and manages the builders while making sure that the course doesn't feel like it was designed by committee, even if it was. In other words, to be good at golf architecture, you have to be good at collaboration. I didn't know much about the collaborative aspects of golf course construction, so I called up Andy Staples. Andy is uniquely thoughtful about the practical side of the business. He's done excellent work at courses as different as Sand Hollow Resort, Meadowbrook Country Club, and Rockwind Community Links. Right now, he's working on a master plan for Olympia Fields Country Club outside Chicago. In talking to Andy, I discovered how broad a topic collaboration in golf course design is. We discussed how he works with owners, contractors, and shapers. We discussed what design build means and how people often misunderstand it. We discussed whether architects get too much credit. In fact, we discussed much more than I was able to include in this episode. You can find some extras from our conversation on thefriedegg.com. And so to me, that collaboration around, around the three equal parts of owner, architect, and contractor is so important. So you would say that there's kind of like a triangle of collaboration? Yeah, I, I, I see that exactly. Because without 
you know, without the architect building it himself, there's the need to have him there. So yeah, the owner is on top. He's the one that he kind of puts this all together and generally it's his vision, Uh, but he needs an architect. He needs a a contractor to see that vision to fruition. Let's start with the ownership side of it, working with clients of of various kinds. Could you describe a typical relationship that you might have with an owner? I I know there are a variety of owners, but what what is that relationship and back and forth usually like? Generally speaking, I'm not dealing with just one quote unquote owner. I have done that. And those are great when you just have one point of contact and one guy cutting the checks. But typically there's committees, there's multiple people that I report to and whether it's a master plan committee or green chairman or, you know, a general manager, superintendent. So, so typically it's kind of a revolving door and it's actually funny. You know, one of the conversations I just had today is, okay, I've have a conversation with the superintendent. I'm going to hang up and I'm going to say, okay, let's reach out to the general manager and have the same conversation, the same subject matter, but in a different way, you know, okay, Mr. General manager, here's, here's what's going on. So let me just, you know, nothing's, nothing's wrong. Just, uh, just want to keep you updated. And so it's really a, it's a dance of personalities is really what it is. So I, nine times out of 10, I'm dealing with multiple people and that that's really indicative of how we're chosen. I mean, when we first hear of jobs, you know, whether you're on a list of two or three, or you was selected out of 15 people on a project as well. So, you know, there's always multiple people that when the project gets serious, they want to get involved. And so typically that will dwindle to, you know, three or five people, but there's always multiple people, I would say, on every project. So you mentioned the kind of architect selection process. How does that usually go for you? This is something of a mystery to me, actually, how architects really go about getting jobs. Maybe it's even (laughs) mysterious to a few architects out there. You know, we're all still trying to figure that out. You know, you can't do enough good work and have enough of a reputation uh, at all in your, in, in your, in your profession. So what we all work to is just to get some form of a, of a name recognition so that when a project comes up in an area or a type of project by maybe an old architect or a sustainability project, so that they think of me. And so it's a range from being on a list where I'll get a call from a superintendent or a committee member saying, hey, we're compiling a list of guys, want to check and see, you know, if you are available, are you interested? This is, you know, ask me some questions and I'll let you know what we're trying to do and see if you're interested. Uh, so I would say that's probably half of my projects are are now kind of inbound. Uh, and then there's others that are just flat out cold calls. I got a job here in Phoenix uh, not too long ago where, you know, I have a guy that helps me call here uh, in my office. I said, here's a list, call these guys, see if there's an interest. And sure enough, they were just putting together an RFP for architects. And, you know, we just happened to grab them and, and we ended up getting the job. Yeah. Obviously, the golf construction industry has contracted in recent years. There are just fewer big new build projects how do you think that general kind of contraction of the industry or, or the decline in new projects has changed the way that architects connect with jobs? You kind of got to understand when we go back and we talk about how we got here, you know, the construction technology and the construction industry really started to explode when the, the certain things like USGA greens and irrigation systems, you know, coming out of the, the 50s and the 60s, golf got real complicated and now you needed it wasn't just pushing up greens and it wasn't just doing things that maybe, maybe rudimentarily you were doing before. And so when the golf boom happened, not only was there a lot of projects, there was a lot of complexities that 
we had to really worry about who was actually installing these. Like a USGA green was was new for a lot of years. You know, irrigation systems knew we wanted to have somebody that understood how to do those things. And so now with the contraction, we've had a chance to just sit back and breathe and say, okay, well, there are less projects. Now I get to spend the time in the job, in the field, on the job, uh, working to craft the project. And I would say there's definitely a greater appreciation for understanding the architect needs to, you know, can spend more time in the field and be able to find the guys they want to work on their projects. So you get to spend more time in the field when there are fewer projects. I would imagine you also get to spend more time communicating with these different points of contact at the club or at, or who are associated with the development project. Do you see a, a big part of your job as not only being able to communicate with those folks, but trying to influence them in some way or, or even educate them about what you're trying to do on the golf course or what the golf course could be? You know, for the most part, owners, this is their first project, probably going to be their last project, and they don't have any idea. So they're, they're actually selecting an architect in part to help them through that process. So they want to know what it is that you think needs to be done. They want to know how much that costs. You know, they don't know much of anything going into it. So a lot of what it is that you do through the whole process is actually living up to the things you said from the very beginning. We talked a little bit about how you're, uh, what's typical uh, in the selection process. More times now than ever, you're giving owners a general idea of how much time it's going to take. You're going to talk about general ideas of costs. You're going to give them ideas. I mean, my gosh, we're, we're going through process now where you actually do full on renderings and, and before and after uh, images to just get the job. And so, so then you get the job and now you have to actually live up to what you said. So now if you told them that you could get your project done, you know, from August 15th to November 1st, you better darn well be ready to do that. So when you're actually out there building now, now you're, you're living up to the, actually doing what you said you wanted, you know, you were going to do and managing all those pieces and making sure the contractor is the right contractor and is staying on budget on, on schedule. And then, you know, updating the, the owner along the way. Yeah. It seems like the really thorough planning that you need to do for a job today in the one way, in one way, it kind of shackles you to executing that plan, but also it gives you something to fall back on to say, Hey, you know, this is the idea that we've had from the beginning and it allows you to kind of get your design ideas out there right from the beginning. Yeah. There's, it's certainly a balance of first impressions and what you're thinking, you know, the, the creative aspects of what we're doing. You know, often, I think a lot of us, we have those creative ideas the moment we step out on the golf course for the first time or how many times you've been there. And then let's say you get hired, you go through a design plan. Almost always you come back to some of the very first things that you thought. Certain vistas, certain tweaks to the routing or a different type of bunker strategy or, or style. So generally speaking, I think you know, I try, I personally try to keep the planning work on a, on a top level, like, okay, we're going to generally have this style of greens. The bunkers are going to be grass faced. They're going to be generally about 60 of them. And they're going to be about a thousand square feet a piece. And, you know, exactly where they're going to be, we're going to massage them in the field, but here's a rendering that kind of gives you the reasons for why we're doing it. Uh, and I always leave room for that kind of interpretation in the field. Cause that's, that's where a lot of that creative magic, if you will, happens. And, you know, that's where this this idea of design build really starts to, you know, it's there's a whole process to tee up the project. Probably 80% of the project is is all office and presentation and, and buy-in. And then a good portion of, you know, 20% of the actual work ends up getting out in the field. 
but it's almost 100% of what everyone sees at that point. And so I always leave open for that type of massaging and that type of uh, ad-libbing, if you will. Well, that gives us a good opening to talk about in a little more detail the process in the field. Uh, What does design build mean to you? In the truest sense to me, design build means that an owner is open to not knowing all of the questions, uh, answers to all the questions. Uh, They have a general budget, have a general timeline, but you've got a group of guys that know how to do certain things that you need done and you begin and we all participate in the construction and then we work for as long as we need to and we're done. And we make the adjustments along the way. We're not focused on absolutely having to have everything done at a certain time. You know, to me, the con- the construction industry went very wrong when we started to focus on cheap, fast, and good. You know, cheap and fast, but it's generally not going to be good. If it's good and it's fast, it's not going to be cheap. You can have two of those three. Uh, but our industry has done a really good job of trying to do all three. <laughs> And so contractors raced to that. I mean, I talked earlier about the fact that the construction technology advanced so quickly. These contractors were there to do it and they, they could do it for generally a reasonable number and they could do it quickly. And, and for the most part, you know, when I say good and architecturally, probably not very good, but at least it was structurally sound. Uh, and now design build it eliminates all of that. And I think once you eliminate a schedule, everybody has a budget, but once you eliminate the schedule and we, we realize that the creative aspects are meant to be an art form, golf architecture is an art form and not a schedule and it's not a budget, then that's where the truest sense of design build comes in. Sure. Now, what do you think people often misunderstand about design build? Well, they assume that there is only one way and that if you're not on a, if the architect is not on the bulldozer, then it must not be design build. And when in fact, a lot of these guys that are on their own dozers are working right alongside some of these major contractors. And so, you know, it, it, it all now is a matter of perception of what it actually is. And let's be honest, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone really cares whether it's design build or design bid or through a contractor drawing plans. They would want to know if it's a good project. And if it's a good golf course, then, you know, obviously you're doing something right. Yeah. And and that's such an interesting answer because there's this tendency and, you know, I'll raise my hand and say that I've thought kind of uh, lazily in this way myself before that there is a dichotomy between design build and design bid that anytime you involve a contractor, you're kind of violating the purity of the design build (laughs) process. And it sounds like it's, it's much more uh, gray than that. So what does it mean to involve a contractor? How do you work with contractors? And again, what do you think people misunderstand about the involvement of contractors in golf course projects? I'd be hard pressed to to understand any golf course project today. that doesn't have some form of a golf course contractor involved with it. So to me, unless it's the smallest of projects, a small green complex or some bunkers or some tees, there's going to be a contractor involved. And the biggest pivot that's happened in our industry now is that there are more and more people coming that understand the game of golf. And one of the biggest misnomers I think that has happened with golf course contractors is that they all of a sudden, they don't care about golf or they're, they're not somebody that ends up you know, appreciating what you're, what you're now granted. There's a lot of golf course contractors that have no idea what a bunker is or what a green is. They're just on a piece of equipment. But now more than ever, there's guys that are coming into this field that understand that these guys are passionate about the game of golf and are setting out to build golf courses. And I think one of the things that is probably pretty true in the past and not so much anymore 
is that these golf course builders just looked like it, you know, they looked at it as a, an assembly line. And once they, once the train started moving, every train car had its role and it just went until it was done. It was really hard to get that train going, but once that train was moving, it was really hard to, to slow it down. And the architect's job is to actually slow that train down to stop and say, Hey, listen, we, this is a golf course we're building. We need to do some tinkering here. This isn't quite right. And I don't care if your schedule says it's going that fast. This green's not right yet. And that's the way I've always tried to, to manage my projects is to allow the contractor to do the heavy lifting, the, the high liability work, the irrigation work, the grading, the drainage, and then have a, at least one, if not multiple guys in there that are there with the right amount of time doing the specialty work, the feature work the actual creative work, the artistic work, the stuff that people love to play and, and what makes golf courses good. Do you think that contractors have adjusted recently in the same way that architects have to a smaller industry? Are, are contractors starting to operate more along a, a kind of each project is unique model and, and let's spend the time to get it right? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I would tell you that that the the industry is segmented the aspect that has gotten the architecture and has understood that architecture matters these old clubs matter these are guys that have aligned themselves with the top architects and the top clubs they charge a, a good fair wage for it and they set the schedule and uh, celebrate the architecture celebrate the quality and they get paid to do that whereas you know, post-recession, you have an entire group of other people because, you know, the bigger, a lot of contractors have gone by the wayside and the bigger contractors have gotten bigger. And now those guys are numbers games and they're just, yeah, they understand that the architecture part of this is not, has not gone away. So they're appreciative of it. And they are now more so than ever. When I first started selecting my own shapers, they were like, no, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. Uh, but now you, it's hard pressed to find another contractor that doesn't allow an architect to bring his own shaper. So that's huh. a little bit of a tweak, but it's still a numbers game. Do you find yourself often working with the same set of shapers to do some of that finished work that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like being able to go up to a, a particular bunker or a concept and just say, hey, listen, this, this green angles from right to left. There's a bunker front left. There's maybe a roll off in the back and a couple of bunkers. I'm thinking of this hole at Royal Melbourne or you know, the, I did this at Sand Hollow and then they go build it. That to me is the truest sense of of the freedom that you get when you get some familiarity with the guys you're working with. Uh, it's so frustrating when you get a, a contractor and you say, hey, have you ever been to the old course at St. Andrews? Have you ever been to Shinnecock? You know, what's that? You know, so, you know, and those are real conversations you have with shapers. They're like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, the, I've been in that bunker. I actually made par from that bunker. And it's okay, perfect. Not quite as deep, but go ahead and go with that concept. How do you go about collaborating with people in the field who maybe don't have the reference points that you would expect or haven't worked on one of your projects before? Um, does it just mean that you're more involved uh, on a granular level with the work that they're doing out there? Um, you know, what, what's your approach? Yeah, I think if you're, we know when it's right and we know when it's wrong. And you know, if you got something started and it's just not going the right direction, the only way to do it is to actually in some cases, get on the piece of equipment and do it yourself or just stand there and wait for them to get it right. And I think that's where the time of this new mentality, this opportunity to spend more time really is important. You know, a good site visit to me is, is anywhere from two to three days. 
And, you know, I find too, that if you're there, there's certain parts of the golf course that you can be there. You don't need to be there. There's some work that needs to be done. You don't need to be there all the time. But, you know, when we were actually into the detail work of bunker edging and green slopes, I'm there the entire day, finishing it off, hand raking, shoveling, and actually showing them exactly what we're talking about. Pictures are very, uh, very handy. I'll be texting pictures. I'll be sketching the iPad and the field work around GPS and the ability to just kind of monitor and, and, and communicate that way is at an all time high. You know, what? part of what fascinates me about golf course architects is that they're at the center of this maelstrom of uh, owners, of contractors, of shapers, of just, you know, all sorts of different people with their own interests and their own perspectives and personalities. And the golf course architect has to somehow impose some kind of order on that chaos and, and turn it into collaboration to take this, uh, the, all, all these different people and, and somehow unify them around a project. What kind of interpersonal skills do you think architects need to have in order to do that? Well, I, that that's a great question. And it's also one that's really hard for me to kind of answer across the board. I can, I can answer for my own sake. And I learned really early on that we spend so much time and passion into this creation that the people we work with, we want to have fun with them. We want to be friends with them. We want, we want to have some, we have to understand that this is the game of golf. We have the common purpose of what we're creating. And from my standpoint, the personality for me is just to understand that the passion comes through with my work. We're here to build the best golf course that we possibly can. And that ultimately is going to be a He's something that lives far greater than our lives, and it's going to be something that they can be proud of as owners. I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're reflecting our owners' intentions. Uh, so to me, that the, the interpersonal skills of understanding how to connect with our owners and our contractors, I've, I've always worked hard on that. I, mean, I think we can always be better at it. But once I started figuring out that if I'm spending my owners like it was his own, I know that I was going to go, I was going to drive a, a, some consensus with them, and that's what I try to do in all my projects. Do you think that those skills are even more important for golf course architects now than they used to be? Well, by used to be, if you're, if you're referring to maybe 20, 30 years ago, I think you're probably right. You know, that's, I still get over some of the, some of the preconceived notions of, oh, really, Andy, you're, you're going to be here every week. I thought you guys only come like every three weeks, you know? (laughs) And it's like, uh, no, I'll be here every week. You know, and I certainly don't want to broad brush everyone, but the the ego of golf architecture run amok is certainly something I've had to to kind of get over. It's like this this kind of celebrity, this hey, don't touch him. Can I come out and talk? You know, all that stuff is like, and I don't know if that's just societal or if that's you know, I, I'm not sure, but I, I do know that we as a as a as an industry are still trying to get past that. And I think ultimately, when you get out on a on a really good project, you realize that all these guys are there having fun. A lot of times they're, they're living together or they're really close together. There's barbecues every Friday afternoon. You know, there's things that you just get a sense that it's a family. And so to me, that's, that's what makes great projects. So you think like the kind of community vibe on a project is, it shows itself in the work. Uh, th- th- without a doubt, without a doubt. That's interesting. So how, how do you see that coming through? I think there's a certain, there's definitely a certain uh, expectation or a personal pressure that they put on to perform. It's certainly, when, as you kind of get into the design shapers and people that understand game of golf, they're already looking at it from a golf perspective. So they realize, like, you know what, this means something. You know, I want, I want this golf course to be talked 
you know, right next to some of the greatest golf courses in history. And so a really good example would be a typical workday is start at seven and you're off by four thirty or five. And you see when the trucks, you know, everyone gets the golf course and they get in the trucks and they go. And some of the best times that I've had is creating those details right at sunset when everyone's gone and we're out there just as the shadows are, are creating, we go back to the tee and say, okay, it's not quite right. And we go back and forth and those types of kind of interactions that you, you will only see at that particular time during the day of which every single golfer that golfs for the rest of the, the life of that course is going to see that course at that time because it's still daylight. They're still golfing. So that kind of buy-in and that kind of passion around creation, I have no doubt only happens when people understand the kind of the pressure to perform and the interest to perform and the context of what it is that we're doing. And maybe they want to be there. They have no other place to go. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe they're like, yeah, this I mean, is better than watching TV in my hotel room. I like being around yeah. these people in this place. I, I think I'll stay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so the rental companies have a 50 hour limit on your rental equipment. And so I, you know, the best thing that we know that we, what we're doing is when we're blowing through the 50 hours a week on the on running a dozer, running a Sampro, running an excavator, because that means you're either behind schedule or you're just building great stuff. You got nothing else to do. Is that your favorite thing to do as an architect? There is nothing better than watching things happen in the dirt and, and making some, actually I'd take that one step further. I, there's nothing better than seeing some things come together not only as you've planned it, but somewhat the happy mistakes that we talk about in the business that only happen in, in the field and, and watching that come together. I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds appealing right now, especially. <laughs> I've been inside a lot lately. Well, and I think, I think one of the, the empty, you know, I think one of the best things that's happening with the Tom and the, the Bill and the, the Gill kind of movement is this new understanding that the architects aren't the only ones that come up with the ideas, that it doesn't all run through one person. There is some community about golf architecture that is unlike anything else. There's a certain hollow, hollowness that if you're only there doing it yourself, that it has to be experienced with other people. Because quite honestly, they're the only one, that, that, that's the, the joy of this business is, is understanding that you're able to share this and that, that it isn't all about you. And I think that that lack of ego amongst all of us that try to work together that way. Uh, now it's started a little bit of a snobbery because we certainly think that there's a certain level that we all need to achieve to, I think, but, mm -hmm. but at the end of the end of the day, it's for the right reasons. It's because we love what we're doing and we love how we're doing it. So we've kind of completed the circle here. We've, we've talked about a little bit about the bid process, about relationships with points of contact at a club or a course uh, owners and we've talked about some of the in-the-field work and working with contractors and the actual construction or, or build process. So if I can ask you to put your historian's hat on for a second, the way that we often understand the history of golf architecture is that there have been a series of architects who have built great things and have made innovations and done things in new ways to push the discipline in new directions and that's how change happens over time is, is it's pushed forward by these great architects in talking to you about collaborating with all these different people. I I'm actually somewhat in a, in a state of ambivalence about 
whether we give too much credit to the lead architect or not enough credit to the lead architect. Because on the one hand, there are all these other people involved and the quality of their work is key to the quality of the final product. And yet the lead architect is is overseeing the whole process and there has to be a, an enormous expertise brought to bear on that. So I, I don't know. What do you think? Do, do we overrate individual architects as kind of agents of historical change? Is there another way for us to see how great courses come to be? I believe so. I still have yet to have a project that I have any project that I'm proud of that somebody hasn't had as much or more of a role in its creation than I did. Mm. And I look at Meadowbrook. Meadowbrook would not be what Meadowbrook is if it wasn't for Scott Clem, the shaping uh, shaper that I had on the job. You know, Rock Wind was Scott Clem and Jim Haley, among other guys. Don Mahaffey was a part of that as well. And then I just did some bunkers here in, in Phoenix. And then I'm working on a project in Southern California. Uh, Sterling Garner's been on the, fortunately, been the same shaper on the same contractor. And he's having an incredible input. And so it, it goes on and on. And I think we we hear a lot of that from a lot of the other guys that talk about what they do, that they know that the golf courses wouldn't be what they are without this collaboration from other people. And in a lot of respects, other guys should get more credit than the guys that do. And I think, you know, you're seeing that today. And I think that for certain had happened in years past, especially given that we know that, you know, for McKinsey, for example, going down to the sand belt, you know, he wasn't spending much time there. He was in and out. And, you know, that he left behind his ideas. So somebody, you know, Morecambe had to you know, implement those. So, you know, right there that that entire sand belt, uh, it looks for uh, the way it does because at least uh, two people, if not more. So I, I believe I believe that. But I, I tell you though, I, I use this. I use this as a as an example. Like when I first started my own business, somebody must have told me because it's always been in my mind. If you got into an elevator and an owner of a possible golf course project got in the elevator and you had one, you know, one floor to make an impression, and that's all you had, and you had to leave him with something, him or her with something before he got off. What was that going to be? And I think that's kind of what golf design is. It, you have to boil it. You can't say that it was designed by five people. It's just the marketing, the media, all of those things that go along with it. People just don't have the bandwidth for that. But they want to assign it to one person. And I think there's some positive to that. Obviously, if you're if you're the one person, there's positives. But uh, there's no doubt that that's unfair to everybody that's created those projects. You know, it just, it's just impossible to think of all the details that we do and have one person come up with those details. Yeah. I sort of, uh, I think about the career that, that I've, uh, started to, you know, I, I, I like to make analogies between writers and architects quite a bit, but the fun thing that you have as a writer is that you're completely in control <laughs> of everything. You're, you're not really working with anybody else unless you're working with an editor or publisher and you know, the, the people at the fried egg, we collaborate a lot and we, we work together a lot, but it's very simple. And I know that, you know, when something doesn't turn out right, it's just my fault alone. <laughs> uh, and nobody's going to come in and alter it. But, yeah, you know, golf architecture is just such a different version of artistry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it brings up a perfect question about you know, what happens if something went wrong? What happens if an owner didn't want to pay for a certain aspect or the contractor did something shortchanged and we didn't catch it? Should that go into this conversation of what went into the golf course? Yeah. And it is almost impossible to actually document and explain all of those pieces because you could go every single hole and have some some different reason for why things happen, what they how they happened. And that's one of the things that I feel like I've been incessive about 
is being involved to make sure those things don't happen. Mm -hmm. And should it matter? Should I explain to you as a, as a golfer or as a Raider or something like that about, Oh, well, you didn't realize that we had the wetland here and then there was a storm drain. No, you as a golfer, you don't care about that. So I need to make sure that it's still a good golf course. If it can't be a good golf course, I got to figure out how not to be involved with it. Or if I am going to be involved with it, it better be good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, it's a heavy responsibility because I, I think we all do understand the ways in which a golf course might go wrong outside of the control of the lead architect. But um, you're right. that, And that's where I've come down on that question often too. It, it is often something that architects bring up as a subject matter that golfers and especially golf course critics don't understand. You don't understand what my client asked me to do here. My client asked me to prepare this course for the U.S. Open. So I went ahead and prepared the course for the U.S. Open. Why are you critiquing my work if that was the objective of the work? And, you know, that makes sense. Like, I, I think that at least if you're going to criticize a course, you, you should know the process that was behind the creation of the course. At the same time, you play the golf course and and you have your reaction to it. And that's that's really, you know, what is the intention of putting effort into the design of a golf course, if not to create a good experience for the golfer when the golfer plays it? So isn't that what really matters? Yeah. And, and make a, an experience something that somebody wants to come back and play again and again and again. So yeah, it, to me, I've heard those excuses. I've some respects. I've been a part of some of those excuses. I understand it. Hope to never make those you know, mistakes again, but it's just an excuse for putting out average or below average work. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. And I think that's where one of the things that's happened now with the, the reduction of large build, new build projects and, and more renovations is that those misses are going to become less and less. Those misses are going to become less and less. Let's really think about what Andy's saying here and what he said throughout that interview. Yes, his industry has shrunk it may shrink more. There are very few new build projects and most of them go to a handful of the top design firms. That's worrisome, but not a reason to despair. In fact, there's an upside here. Everyone from owners to builders to architects has been forced to slow down. And when you slow down, you can do good work. You can even do good work cheaply. This is what hard times can do. They can remind us to take a minute and focus on what actually matters. In the COVID-19 era, golf has changed. More of us are walking, more of us are playing alone. And I like to think that more of us are appreciating the simple pleasure of being outdoors. In other words, we've all slowed down. Not in our pace of play, I hope, but in our perceptions, if that makes sense. We have more time to take in what's around us, see the details of the golf course, Enjoy the craftsmanship of the architecture. In today's best golf course builds and renovations, they're all about details and craftsmanship. The best owners, builders, and architects know the value of taking their time. They slowly learn how to collaborate with each other, and they slowly craft every bunker lip, every grassing line, and every hummock and hollow of every green. They have this time because the industry at large has given it to them, and they're taking advantage of it. My hope is that golfers today can do something similar. If golf becomes quieter and more reflective, 
let's take the opportunity to study the landscape around us. And when that landscape is crafted particularly well, let's give thanks to the time, artistry, hard work, and collaboration that made it possible. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, I've put together a post on it for thefriedegg.com. You can also find us on Twitter at thefriedegg with underscores between each word. And you can find Andy Staples at Build Smarter Golf. Smarter with no E. Let's keep the discussion going. <laughs>